Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Wednesday, February 14, 2024. Reaction to the Democratic victory in Tuesday's special congressional election in New York. The U.S. House Democratic leader, Akeem Jeffries, also from New York, says Tom Suozzi talked about fixing problems and won. Extreme MAGA Republicans lost, and hopefully they will learn their lesson. But the Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson says the result is not something that Democrats should celebrate too much. Their candidate ran like a Republican. Speaker Johnson also saying today the House will not be jammed by the Senate into taking up the $95 billion foreign aid bill for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan because the bill does not have meaningful U.S. border security changes. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, just out of the hospital, gives a virtual speech to the group of countries supporting Ukraine's fight against Russia. House Intelligence Committee Chair Mike Turner calls on the Biden administration to declassify information related to an unspecified serious national security threat. Both the White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and House Speaker Mike Johnson not giving much detail, but saying there is no cause for alarm. Three Washington, D.C. police officers shot and wounded trying to serve an arrest warrant, and this comes up at today's White House news conference with the press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre. Plus, the CBO director, Philip Swagel, testifies before the House Budget Committee about the growing U.S. debt. Story from Associated Press, Democrat Tom Suozzi won a special election for a U.S. House seat in New York on Tuesday, coming out on top in a politically mixed suburban district in a victory that could lift his party's hopes heading into a fiercely contested presidential election later this year. Swazi defeated Republican Mazi Pillup to take the seat that was left vacant when George Santos, also a Republican, was expelled from Congress. The victory marks a return to Washington for Swazi, who represented the district for three terms before giving it up to run unsuccessfully for governor. That was from Associated Press. Tom Swazi beat Mazi Pillup 54 to 46 percent. And the House Democratic leader, Akeem Jeffries, in Washington, spoke about the race outside the Democratic caucus meeting this morning. Tom Swazi ran a positive campaign. Tom Swazi talked about fixing problems like the challenges that we have at the border. Tom Swazi talked about common sense solutions and finding bipartisan common ground. Tom Swazi won. Extreme MAGA Republicans lied about Tom Swazi, lied about the nature of the border crisis, lied about House Democrats, lied about what is actually happening or not happening in the Congress. Extreme MAGA Republicans lost. Hopefully they learned their lesson and actually stop playing politics and start governing for the American people. Can this be duplicated in a district where you don't have a three-term former congressman who is a known entity going up against an unknown entity with snow and all these other complicating factors? We'll leave it to others to determine 
the lessons that should be drawn from the special election yesterday. But there's a clear pattern that goes all the way back to November of 2022, when the expectations from the so-called experts were that Democrats would lose 40, 50, 60 seats, lose the Senate, lose all the governorships. The exact opposite happened. And then the expectation was in November of 2023 that there's no circumstance where the Democratic governor in Kentucky could win, or that perhaps we would get the referendum over the finish line in Ohio, or that the Democrats could actually get the legislative majorities in Virginia. The exact opposite happened. And then we had a special election yesterday in New York that was entirely consistent with every single thing that the American people have been doing for the last few years. In the toughest swing district in New York, by far, it's not even close in terms of the others. Tom Swazi ran a great campaign. Tom Swazi talked about issues, fixing challenges, solving problems. And there certainly are lessons to be learned in that regard from other candidates as we approach November. The U.S. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat from New York, with reporters today on Capitol Hill after yesterday's victory in a congressional special election in New York. Democrat Tom Swasey defeating Republican Mozzie Pillup. White House spokesperson Andrew Bates with a statement calling that special election a devastating repudiation of congressional Republicans. He writes, Tom Swasey put support for the bipartisan border legislation and congressional Republicans killing of it for politics at the forefront of his case, and the results are unmistakable. The U.S. House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, asked at a news conference today about the takeaways from the special election. Speaker Johnson, last night there was about a nine-point swing from Democrats, uh, from Republicans to Democrats in New York three. Um, does that mean that House Republicans have a challenge in keeping the majority? And what should House Republicans do? No, the the, uh, the result uh, last night is is not something, in my view, that Democrats should celebrate too much. Think about what happened there. They spent about fifteen million dollars to win a seat that President Biden won by eight points. They won it by less than eight points. Their candidate ran like a Republican. He sounded like a Republican talking about the border and immigration because everybody knows that's the top issue that is on the concern, uh, the hearts and minds of everybody. That incumbent had been a three-term member of Congress, and he had a 100% name ID and a deep family history in the district. Our, our candidate was relatively unknown uh, in that comparison and had a very short runway. Um, she, she ran a remarkable campaign. Um, you know, there was a weather event that, uh, that affected turnout. There are a lot of factors there. That is in no way a bellwether of what's going to happen this fall. We are absolutely convinced. I've been to 17 states in the last 12 weeks. I'm telling you, whether I'm out west on Long Island, uh, in the Deep South, Mid-South, in Midwest, it doesn't matter. There is, a, there is a fervor among the American people, and it is bipartisan. People know that this country is on the wrong track. 74% in the latest poll believe that the, the country's on the wrong track. Why? Because the leadership from the White House, they see what is happening. President Biden has the lowest approval rating of any president who has ever run for re-election. I think it's 37% in the latest poll. It, it, it goes down precipitously. 
And the reason is because of his, all the things we've talked about today. It is a total lack of leadership. And now more and more Americans have made their own opinion about his fitness for office. And so I think that's going to have a big effect in the fall as well. So New York 3 uh, was, uh, was what it was, but that has nothing to do on the efforts going forward. House Speaker Mike Johnson at a news conference. A New York Times article about the special election from Tuesday reads that Donald Trump, for his part, distanced himself from Mozzie Pillup, a registered Democrat who never fully embraced him as a candidate, deriding her as a very foolish woman. In a statement on Truth Social, he wrote in capital letters, MAGA, which is most of the Republican Party, stayed home and it always will unless it is treated with the respect that it deserves. Also from the New York Times article, and if Tom Suozzi's run spared the Democrats a full-on election year freakout. It also laid bare the extent of the party's challenges ahead. Mr. Suozzi, a longtime ally of Mr. Biden, distanced himself from the president and the National Party at nearly every turn. From CNN, Speaker Mike Johnson is telling his House Republican conference members that he is not rushing to respond to a bill sending aid to Ukraine and Israel as GOP lawmakers weigh their options for how to handle the Senate pass package. Johnson told his members at a closed-door meeting Wednesday that there's no rush in deciding how to handle foreign aid, according to GOP Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, and did not tip his hand on how he plans to proceed other than making clear he would not put the Senate package on the House floor in its current form. At a news conference after the closed meeting, the Speaker focused on the fact that the Senate passed bill does not include anything about U.S. border security. The Speaker also mentions in this clip the vote last night in the House to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas by a vote of 214 to 213. On the no side, three Republicans and all the Democrats. Regarding the border, you know, talk about the American people not being listened to. They are crying out to the Biden administration to secure the border. This is not a Republican issue. It's an issue for every single person, and everybody knows it. We know the stories of children being poisoned by fentanyl and cities being overwhelmed by migrant surges. We know House Republicans have shown that we are listening to and, and, and holding the administration accountable for this catastrophe. We're listening to the people. We're taking action to hold Biden accountable. Last night, the House voted to approve articles of impeachment against Secretary Mayorkas. Desperate times call for desperate measures. We had to do that. He has abdicated his responsibility, he's breached the public trust, and he's disregarded the laws Congress has passed. But, but much more has to be done, of course, to secure the border. And what the Senate produced this week is silent on that issue. Senator McConnell and I have spoken about this in frank sessions, and let me be clear here again this morning. The Republican-led House will not be jammed or forced into passing a foreign aid bill that was opposed by most Republican senators and does nothing to secure our own border. It's time for Washington to start showing some love to Americans. On Valentine's Day, this is a good day to point this out. You need to listen to the American people and their needs and take action. And that's why House leadership will continue to govern with Americans' interests at heart. House Speaker Mike Johnson at a news conference on Capitol Hill. At the White House, the Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre asked about how the Senate will be dealing with the impeachment trial of the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and also about House Speaker Mike Johnson's repeated request to meet with President Biden on U.S. border security. Is the White House confident that the Democratic-led Senate can and will move quickly to dismiss the impeachment case against Secretary Mayorkas? So, um, look, here's what I can say. And you saw the president's uh, statement uh, yesterday. 
last night on, on what occurred in the House. And we've been very clear about how we feel about what's occurring on the House. Um, I do want to just, uh, I know we, we've gotten this question a couple times. Uh, I do want to say that the President did connect with Secretary Marcus uh, earlier today. Um, and they, uh, and you saw the President's statement uh, last night, which said that, uh, you know, history will not, rem will, will not uh, look kindly on House Republicans for this blatant act of uh, what we believe to be unconstitutional, unconstitutional bipartisanship. And so we believe that uh, what occurred last night is, by, is, um, is baseless, it's shameful. Uh, we have to remember this is, uh, this is a, a secretary who worked really hard with the Senate to try to get that bipartisan agreement with, obviously, with Republicans and Democrats when it, as, it, as it relates to the uh, border security. And we believe if that had been put into place, if, we had, if it had been moved forward, it would have been the, the tough, yes, the toughest, but also the fairest uh, piece, uh, piece of legislation, obviously, would have been into law uh, that would have dealt with a broken immigration system, beginning to deal with that, and obviously the challenges that we see uh, at the border. And it's unfortunate that uh, that House Republicans prioritize p politics instead of actually getting that done. I'm certainly not going to speak to uh, the process of the Senate. Uh, the Senate is going to move forward in whatever in whatever way that they will. Uh, but we've been really, really, really clear that what we saw that uh, the vote uh, coming out of House Republicans, uh, they would rather play politics instead of doing their jobs. And we saw bipartisan support against uh, the impeachment just uh, last week. And so it is unfortunate that uh, this occurred. It is truly unfortunate. Uh, and so I'm just going to leave it there for now. And then secondly, Speaker Johnson has suggested that he needs a one-on-one -on -one meeting with President Biden. Given that Johnson has said he doesn't feel rushed on uh, foreign aid, would that one-on-one -on -one meeting help? I, I mean, look, and I appreciate the question, Josh, but the President met with, um, met with obviously, congressional leadership less than a month ago just less than a month ago. And he made really clear how important it was to get that bipartisan uh, negotiated legislation coming out of the Senate, how important it was to get that, to move that forward. And let's not forget, it's almost as, it's almost as the, the, the speaker is actually negotiating with himself, truly, because he first said he needed to see the border security in the deal, in the national security supplemental deal, right? It, it, meaning like border security needed to be dealt with first, because it obviously it was in the national sec, uh, uh, security supplemental that the president put forward in October. He wanted to see that done first. We did that. The Senate delivered that. The Senate, the president, in a bipartisan way, delivered that. Then he doesn't want it. Then he doesn't want it in there, right? And so then, of course, the Senate goes back, takes it out, and presented a national security supplemental without the border, then he's like, well, I don't want that either. So what is it? He decide, instead, he decides to choose Donald Trump. And let's not forget, there's fentanyl traffickers, right? That's what he, he, he sided with over the border patrol, uh, over, uh, over this president, and what, in doing what majority of Americans wants us to do. He's the one killing this. He is. And what we believe is there is indeed bipartisan support in, in Congress for it. There is. And we've heard that. We've heard that there's bipartisan support. House Republicans, like Andy Biggs, have been explicit that it would pass the House if allowed a vote, and that should happen. Even in House Republican leadership is, is aligning, right? They're aligning. If you think about it, you just heard, you just heard Jake Sullivan talk about what, how important it is to make sure we get that support to Ukraine, right? By doing what they're doing, the leadership, they're supporting Putin, right? They're siding with Putin. 
and Tehran. You heard me say that at the top. So if they were, if the speaker would actually put this bipartisan uh, bill to the floor that deals with our national security, it would actually pass in a bipartisan way out of the House. And that's where we are today. The White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre at her news conference at the White House. There are reports that alternative bills are being circulated. Again, from the CNN article, Republican Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania said he has been drafting a bipartisan plan to provide aid for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and the border, which he plans to release in the next 24 to 48 hours and brief the speaker on. He said it will include a border security component, but not H.R. 2. The conservative Republican-led set of border policy changes that the House passed last year and military aid for Ukraine, but not humanitarian assistance. That was from CNN. As Queen Jean-Pierre mentioned, joining her at today's briefing was the National Security Advisor at the White House, Jake Sullivan, who also called on the House to pass the $95 billion foreign aid emergency supplemental spending bill that just passed the Senate. You heard the president yesterday thank the broad bipartisan coalition of senators who came together to advance this agreement. And he urged Speaker Johnson to quickly bring this bill to the floor of the House of Representatives for a vote. Because we know if that vote comes to the floor of the House of Representatives, it will pass on an overwhelming bipartisan basis, just as it did in the Senate. As the president said, we cannot afford to wait any longer. Every day comes at a cost to the people of Ukraine and to the national security interests of the United States of America. The stakes are getting higher. The costs of inaction are also getting higher every day, especially in Ukraine. We've been increasingly getting reports of Ukrainian troops rationing or even running out of ammunition on the front lines as Russian forces continue to attack both on the ground and from the air trying to wear down the Ukrainian air defenses that we've worked so extensively to build up over the past two years. So our allies are watching this closely. Our adversaries are watching this closely. There are those who say U.S. leadership and our alliances and partnerships with countries around the world don't matter or should be torn up or walked away from. We know from history that when we don't stand up to dictators, they keep going. And the consequences of that would be severe for U.S. national security, for our NATO allies, for others around the world. And so President Biden is determined to get this done on a bipartisan basis through the House of Representatives to get this aid out the door uh, so that we are helping our friends and partners and we are helping ourselves. The White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan at today's White House briefing. This is Washington Today. Congressman Mike Turner, Republican from Ohio, the Intelligence Committee chair, put out a statement that reads, Today, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence has made available to all members of Congress information concerning a serious national security threat. I am requesting that President Biden declassify all information relating to this threat so that Congress, the administration, and our allies can openly discuss the actions necessary to respond to this threat. Asked about this statement, Jake Sullivan at the White House, Speaker Mike Johnson on Capitol Hill, and Congressman Jim Himes, the ranking member on the Intelligence Committee. First, Jake Sullivan. Shortly before you came out, Congressman Mike Turner issued a statement saying that President Biden should declassify intelligence related to a, quote, serious national security threat. Um, What can you say about the threat and what the administration plans to do? 
So first, I reached out uh, earlier this week to the Gang of Eight uh, to offer myself for a, up for a personal briefing to the Gang of Eight. And in fact, we scheduled a briefing for the four House members of the Gang of Eight tomorrow. Uh, that's been on the books. So I am a bit surprised that Congressman Turner came out publicly today in advance of a meeting on the books for me to go sit with him alongside our intelligence and defense professionals tomorrow. That's his choice to do that. All I can tell you is that I'm focused on going to see him, sit with him, as well as the other House members of the Gang of Eight tomorrow. And I'm not in a position to say anything further from this podium at this time, other than to make the broad point that this administration has gone further uh, and in more creative, more strategic ways, dealt with the declass declassification of intelligence in the national interest of the United States than any administration in history. Uh, so you definitely are not going to find an unwillingness to do that when it's in our national security interest to do so. At the same time, we, of course, have to continue to prioritize and focus very much on the issue of sources and methods. We'll do that. Ultimately, these are decisions for the president to make. But in the meantime, the most important thing is we have the opportunity to sit in a classified setting and have the kind of conversation uh, with the House intelligence leadership that I, in fact, had scheduled before uh, Congressman Turner went out today. The White House and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan at today's White House briefing and later on Capitol Hill. This from Speaker Mike Johnson. I do have a statement, and I'm, I'm going to be very precise, and I'm not going to take questions, but last month I sent a letter to the White House requesting a meeting with the President to discuss a serious national security issue that is classified. In response to that letter, a meeting is now scheduled tomorrow on this matter here at the Capitol with the Gang of Four and with the President's National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan. I will press the administration to take appropriate action, and everybody can uh, be comforted by that. I saw Chairman Turner's statement on the issue, and I, I want to assure the American people there is no need for public alarm. We are going to work together to address this matter, as we do all sensitive matters that are classified. And beyond that, uh, I'm not at liberty to disclose classified information and really can't say much more. But we just want to assure everyone, um, steady hands are at the wheel, we're working on it, and there's no need for alarm. House Speaker Mike Johnson. At a different place in the Capitol, Congressman Jim Himes, Democrat from Connecticut, ranking member on the Intelligence Committee, took questions about this. That this intelligence is related to the U.S. or to Russia wanting to put a to Russia wanting to put a nuclear weapon in space. I can't comment on anything well, related to that. What would that mean for the U.S.? I, I can't comment on on that on that uh, on that whole hullabaloo today. Can you comment? Can you comment on how concerned Americans should be? Americans should not panic. Uh, the program, uh, or I should say the intelligence uh, to which the chairman uh, uh, made, a, made members available, is consistent with any number of threats that we get in the intelligence committee on a weekly basis. So there's no cause for panic. Um, and, uh, you know, the particular issue that the intelligence relates to is one that the administration and the Congress will work together to address the way we do on all sorts of threats. Was it responsible for the chairman to sound the alarm like this? Um, I, I'm not going to characterize what I think about the chairman's thing, other than to say there's really no cause for panic or alarm around this particular piece of intelligence. Congressman Jim Himes, ranking Democrat on the Intelligence Committee, meeting with reporters, a Politico article reads, a vague warning by the chair of the House Intelligence Committee about a serious national security threat Wednesday is related to Russia and space, according to three people familiar with the matter. 
The U.S. has been concerned about Russia's advancement in space for years, while the people did not provide much in terms of details. One of them said the intelligence is related to Moscow's weaponization of its orbital systems. And a note about the House schedule from The Hill. Speaker Mike Johnson abandoned plans to bring a bill to the House floor this week that would reauthorize the nation's warrantless spy program. A second failure to consider legislation that has sparked a battle between two powerful committees. Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, which allows the government to spy on non-citizens located abroad, has divided the House's intelligence and judiciary committees, who are at odds over whether the program should include a warrant requirement. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, writes USA Today, appeared Wednesday by video before representatives of Western allies who are supporting Ukraine, his first public appearance since he was hospitalized this weekend with a bladder issue. He pledged to stand behind Ukraine and help deliver its most urgent needs, artillery ammunition and air defense missiles to defend against Russia's nearly two-year-long invasion. The Ukraine Defense Contact Group met in Brussels, a conference Austin had planned to attend before his latest health setback. Austin's staff rushed him to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center on Sunday. Austin's doctors placed him in intensive care for treatment and monitoring. In a statement, they said Austin is expected to make a full recovery. That was from USA Today. Here's part of Secretary Austin's speech. Good afternoon, everyone. It's great to see you all again. And I'm sorry that I, wouldn't be, I wasn't able to travel to Brussels this week. I look forward to bringing this contact group together. Uh, in person uh, soon. I plan to be in person uh, with you today in Brussels, but I had to return to the hospital for non-surgical procedures. I'm in good condition and my cancer prognosis remains excellent. And I'm really grateful for all the well wishes. Uh, Thanks for working across time zones to join us for the 19th uh, meeting of this contact group. As always, I'm glad that uh, we're joined by a distinguished delegation from Ukraine led by Minister Umerov. Rustam, it's great to have you with us again. And I move that so many allies and partners from around the globe are with us today. That's a testament to this coalition's resolve and unity. And we won't back down. Ladies and gentlemen, later this month, we will mark two full years since the start of Russia's full-scale invasion of its peaceful and democratic neighbor, Ukraine. When Putin launched his unjust and unprovoked war of choice, He was betting that Ukraine would fold, but he couldn't have been more wrong. Ukraine fought Putin's invasion with incredible courage and phenomenal skill. And nations of goodwill around the world rallied to Ukraine's cause. The countries of this contact group, almost two years later, are still united in common purpose. The Kremlin keeps on betting that we will all lose interest in Ukraine and that our support will flicker and fade but I am more determined than ever, and I know that you are as well. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin speaking remotely to representatives of member nations of the Ukraine Defense Contact Group, over 50 of them. NATO defense ministers will be meeting at NATO headquarters in Brussels on Thursday, discussing the war in Ukraine and other common priorities. Another Washington, D.C. figure is back to work after a health-related absence. Congressman Steve Scalise, Republican of Louisiana, the majority leader, was away for six weeks being treated for blood cancer, and he returned yesterday to Capitol Hill. Today, he was at the House Republican Leadership News Conference. It is great to be back, Uh, and even more importantly than that, it's great to be in remission from cancer. It's been a long battle, uh, about six months long, 
but God answers prayers, and there have been a lot of prayers, and thank everybody for the support and prayers along the way, and uh, you surely don't get through this alone, but uh, but I was looking forward to coming back, and uh, and now it's great to be back. Uh, it's great to see all of you. Happy Valentine's Day to everybody, uh, especially happy Valentine's Day to my wife, Jennifer, so uh, she's back home. The House Majority Leader, Steve Scalise. Washington Today continues in a moment. Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. I'd like to introduce you to one of the producers here at C-SPAN, my colleague, Sean. Thanks, Rachel. If you're a fan of Washington Today, we think you'll also like our evening newsletter, Word for Word, which brings you a recap of the day's most important political and policy events delivered right to your inbox. Read about what happened on Capitol Hill and at the White House and watch video highlights featuring the day's newsmakers. Hear them word for word. Join our community of informed listeners and viewers. Head over to cspan.org slash connect and subscribe to Word for Word today. Thanks for listening and staying connected with Word for Word. Subscribe now at cspan.org slash connect. Thank you. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the free C-SPAN Now mobile app. That's C-SPAN Now and wherever you find your podcasts. Three D.C. police officers, writes the Washington Post, serving an arrest warrant related to animal cruelty were shot and wounded Wednesday morning near Benning Park in southeast Washington, and an armed suspect remained barricaded inside a residence, continuing to fire at those on the scene, authorities said. The city's police union said the injuries did not appear to be life-threatening. The White House Press Secretary, Crean Jean-Pierre, was finishing up her news conference at the White House when a reporter asked about this, and she came back to the lectern to address it. We'll see you tomorrow. Crean, the three police officers shot today in D.C. Yeah, I'll, I'll, say, I'll say something about that because I think that's important. Give me one second. There are three police officers shot while trying to make an arrest. No, I understand. I understand. I got you. So let me just say a couple of things here. First and foremost, our hearts go out to these officers and their loved ones. The president is praying. Uh, They make full recoveries, and he is deeply grateful uh, for the sacrifices police officers make to keep our communities safe. Uh, This shooting is yet another distressing and painful reminder of the toll gun violence uh, is inflicting on families, on our communities, and obviously on our nation. Uh, It's why the president has taken executive actions to help uh, keep guns out of the dangerous hands. And DOJ is implementing the new gun trafficking law in the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, but it's not enough. We need we need Republicans in Congress to act. Uh, we need them to be willing to make, uh, to make sure that communities are safer. That's what we uh, continue to ask them to do. The president is going to take continue to take action to fund the police uh, with billions of dollars in his budget that he's put forth every year. Uh, but he needs Republican laws, lawmakers in Congress uh, to to make sure that they put law enforcement first uh, as well as the president has been doing. Yeah. You know, in D.C., homicides are up, crime is up, car drivers <coughs> spiking. Simple question. Does the president believe the nation's capital is safe for Americans from across the country to come visit? I mean, look, we, we hear the reports and see the data as well. Uh, and all violent crime anywhere is completely unacceptable, not just here in D.C. We're going to call that, them all out uh, in communities across the country. Everyone in every community in this country wants the same thing. They want their families uh, to be safe and, uh, and not get into, uh, uh, not get into um, you know, politics on this. The president is wanting to make sure that communities feel safe. And we're not seeing that from congressional Republicans. We're just not. 
they continue to get in the way. The president has taken action. He puts he puts that in his budget every day, making sure that we uh, make communities safer. And we're just not seeing that from Republicans. And so we're going to continue to do our job here. Uh, we want Congress, uh, co Republican congressional members, to join us in that. And I'm going to leave it there. I'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everybody. The White House Press Secretary, Karina Jean-Pierre, at her news conference in the White House briefing room at RNC, Republican National Committee Research, posting on X. NBC4, referring to a D.C. TV station, reports students needed police escorts into school after three police officers were shot in lawless Washington, D.C. Violent crime is way up in the Democrat-run nation's capital, and city leaders are doing nothing. Also, the White House putting out a statement in the afternoon. The president has been briefed on the shooting in Kansas City and will continue to receive updates. White House officials have been in touch with state and local leaders and federal law enforcement is on the scene supporting local law enforcement. Reports from Kansas City, at least one person is dead after a shooting spree after the parade for the Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs. The Congressional Budget Office Director Philip Swagel testified today before the House Budget Committee about the U.S. budget and economic outlook. His recent report estimates the federal budget deficit will grow from the current $1.6 trillion to $2.6 trillion in 10 years. And interest payments on the cumulative U.S. debt will increase from $870 billion this year to $1.6 trillion in 2034 in 10 years. Congressman Lloyd Smuck, a Republican of Pennsylvania, asked Director Swagel what effect that will have on U.S. budgeting and the economic health of the country. This forecast is a 10-year forecast, which you're forecasting at the end of this 10 years will be at 116 uh, percent debt to GDP, which would be a record high. You've also looked uh, in other reports and at various times throughout the year at a longer-term forecast up to 30 years. Can you explain to us what debt to GDP looks like uh, in those forecasts at the end of a 30-year period? Uh, no, no, thank you. And, and in the 10-year um, the outlook at the very back, we have a box that gives a preview of that 30-year report, but it's something that we're working on now and we'll have out in the spring. And the challenge that the high deficits continue out into the future and therefore debt mounts and goes north of 150% of GDP by the end of that 30-year horizon. Uh, over 150 One of your reports, I think, had up to oh, close to 180%. That's that right. It's getting still, close to that. It's still about right. Almost getting close to, letting close to double, which is something that every member of Congress ought to be concerned about. Correct? That's right. Can, can you tell us a little bit? Like, what's, it's not sustainable, I think you've talked about that. What's a sort of a best case scenario? It's going to be rising interest rates that are going to uh, impact the ability of the government to fund anything. Uh, and worst case scenario would be what? No, that's right. That's Based on what's happened in history. Right. So net, net interest payments, the rising net interest payments will crowd out other activities, other choices that you as policymakers have. And that the worst case scenario are risks of instability, of financial instability. If global investors doubt the, the willingness of the United States to pay its debt without giving in to high, to high inflation. And that would be a sovereign debt crisis. That would be a, a debt crisis or an inflation crisis. Uh, yeah, which would have uh, massive uh, impacts on every American. Do you agree with that? That's right. And in fact, we've seen countries fail in similar situations throughout history. Do you agree with that? I, I do. Yeah. So um, you're the 
independent voice telling every member of Congress that this is really an existential crisis to the future of the country. Is that correct? No, I think that's fair. And I, as you said, I would look at other countries that have failed this challenge. Do you think, do you the think the American people understand that what we're faced with? I mean, you know, I'd like to think there's broad awareness that we face yeah. a serious problem. Um, the difficulty is, is finding the way to the, the purpose, and I'm sorry, I'm no, no, doing this quickly, but the purpose of a, a debt commission, I believe, uh, one of the main purposes is to really explain this to the American people. Do you see value in that? No, I, I do, explaining the problem and then saying here are the, the range of possible solutions. Yes, uh, which is exactly what we're hoping to set out to do with, uh, with a debt commission. Congressman Lloyd Smucker, Republican from Pennsylvania, questioning the Congressional Budget Office, CBO Director Philip Swagel, at today's House Budget Committee hearing. CBO does not only a 10-year budget estimate, but a 10-year growth estimate. And Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, Democrat from Texas, asked the director about that. First straightforward question I want to ask is, is the economy of the United States the strongest in the world? Um, yes, the, the U.S. had strong growth last year. We project continued growth this year, and um, our growth is, is better than much of the rest of the world. So I'm going to put on the record, um, when we were in enormous uh, panic about the inflation, uh, we now can say that we do have falling inflation. Would you say that is tr- uh, correct? That's right, and we, cont- we expect uh, inflation to continue to fall. What is amazing to me is the level of job creation Um, I do want to have you, since I'd like to be an honest broker in this, um, I think the job creation is stupendous, but you hear, I shouldn't say every once in a while, you hear this company or that company laying off 800, 1,000. What does that mean, even with job creation being strong? It's, um, at the same time, we've had strong job creation, as you said. There's been adjustment in some sectors. The tech sector has, faces, has faced adjustment in particular. Um, and that's consistent with the growing economy, is that some sectors will contract and other sectors will grow. I think that is very important because it can be taken out of context. Oh, we're, they're, they're laying off people by the, by the dozens or the hundreds. What you're saying is that is a, a normal sort of uh, economic influence, uh, as well as industries sometimes are in the in crowd and some are sometimes out. Is that what you're saying to us? Uh, I, I think that's a good way of putting it. It's the, the ha- one of the hallmarks of our economy is our flexibility and the ability of Americans to, to, to grow and, and in substance to ch- change with the um, circumstances. So if you had to, um, as my time, if you had to just uh, say what our economic outlook is right now, what would you say it is? Um, uh, so I think our economic projection is overall a positive one. We do expect the economy to slow a bit this year as the Fed's interest rate hikes you know, continue to bite into, um, into the economy. Then we expect you know, some recovery ne- uh, next year, but continued growth, continued low unemployment, continued job creation. CBO Director Philip Swagel, questioned by Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, Democrat from Texas. You can find today's House Budget Committee hearing in its entirety, runs about two and a half hours at our video library, cspan.org. Wall Street today, the Dow up 151, NASDAQ up 203, S&P up 47. From thehill.com, leaders of both parties are calling on Congress to quickly pass a revised farm bill before funds run out this summer, but tensions are reemerging 
over the key ideological divide that helped scuttle last year's farm bill. Members of both parties expressed the importance of not cutting popular food aid and conservation programs, but there's a wide array of competing interests that will make passage a challenge. C-SPAN covered this hearing as well. You can find it at cspan.org. The witness was Tom Vilsack, the Agriculture Secretary, and in his opening statement, he talked about the priority of small and mid-sized farms. In 1981, then uh, uh, Secretary Bob Berglund raised concerns about the efforts and focus on production and its impact on the number of farms in this country. Since he raised that warning in 1981, we have lost 536,543 farms. We have lost over 165 million acres of farm land. Now, to give you a sense of how many farmers that is, that's every farmer today in South Dakota, North Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa, North, uh, Nebraska, Colorado, and Oklahoma and Missouri. The farmland represents all the line mass of Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Maryland, and almost all of Virginia. Farm income has been extraordinarily concentrated. With the top 7% of farms, those who generate more than $500,000 in sales on an annual basis, over the last five years, getting 85% of the income, which meant that 93% of farms, nearly 2 million farms, had to share 15%. These are serious issues, and I think it's important for us to reset the notion that the only option in American agriculture is to get big or get out. It's time for us to do better for our small and mid-sized farming operations, those 93% that share 15% of income, that are surviving for the most part by taking a second job, I think we need to create for our farm families ways in which the farm, not the farmer, can create additional income. The Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack, his opening statement before the House Agriculture Committee today. The Census of Agriculture released this week also finds the average age of a farmer in the United States is 58 years old. The first question at the hearing to Secretary Vilsack from the committee chair, Republican Glenn Thompson of Pennsylvania, was about California's Prop 12 law that tightens animal welfare requirements for pork products sold in California. A Reuters article explains that Proposition 12 was passed by ballot initiative in 2018 and was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2023. The pork industry has said the law burdens pork producers and would not improve animal welfare. It has called on Congress to repeal Prop 12 through federal action. Preliminary data from a pending study at USDA's office of the chief economist shows that prices of certain pork products have risen as much as 41% since the implementation of Proposition 12. A 2023 study found that the costs associated with Prop 12 are, quote, widespread and extensive, end quote. That same study expressed that, that um, quote, these costs have a more severe impact on smaller independent operations and that the stresses placed upon the entire production and marketing chain will lead to ever-increasing consolidation and concentration of the industry, end quotes. Now, we appreciate that the Biden administration sided with the industry during the Supreme Court case. As we all know, the Supreme Court has weighed in on this matter and asked Congress to act. Uh, when thinking about the stated goals of this administration and your very own testimony to serve small Producers, can you speak to the economic harms from Proposition 12? And quite frankly, if pork prices are going up for consumers and costs are going up for producers, who's winning here? Uh, Mr. Chairman, I don't want to take you all the way back in our history, but I'm going to, uh, in response to your question to the Articles of Confederation. 
if you remember when we began as a republic, uh, we had basically a, a theory and, and structure that states would basically govern their own activities within their borders. Uh, what we found after uh, several years of that experiment was chaos. Uh, and I think, frankly, uh, that's where we are potentially headed. Uh, the reality is this, that w when each in a state has the ability to define for itself and for its consumers exactly what farming techniques or practices uh, are appropriate, it does create the possibility of 50 different sets of rules and regulations, uh, which obviously creates serious concerns for producers because they have no stability and they have no certainty. Uh, I'm not sure that this Congress uh, is going to be able to pass legislation um, with due respect, uh, but I would suggest that if we don't take this thing, uh, this issue seriously, we're going to have chaos in the marketplace uh, because there's nothing preventing any state from doing what California did. Now, why did the Supreme Court decide what they decided? They decided it because they, they believed that each and every producer had its had their own uh, choice to participate in this market. Uh, they basically said it didn't uh, violate the Commerce Clause because it didn't discriminate against any particular producer. Well, the problem, I think, is that it didn't anticipate the, uh, the, uh, the impact of 12% of the market changing the rules on the entire market. And I think that there's, there's uh, risk of that occurring uh, all across the country. Uh, having said that, it is a little bit difficult, however, to, to create consistency within this Congress and within this country on this issue of states' rights. Because if you apply this standard, then you're going to have to, to discuss some of the more difficult issues, social issues, guns, abortion, et cetera. So I don't envy the Congress trying to figure this out. Uh, I will tell you, though, that if it doesn't figure it out, there's going to be chaos. The Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack questioned by the House Agriculture Committee Chair Glenn Thompson. And finally, on this Valentine's Day, a number of members of Congress, House and Senate, are posting using the hashtag Valentine's for Vets. And Josh Gottheimer, Democrat from New Jersey, included this video. Hey everyone, we're at the New Jersey Veterans Home here right in Paramus, New Jersey. Uh, and we're going to go see some veterans. I just left a wonderful school in Leonia uh, where these children, not just in Leonia, but all across Bergen County, made cards for veterans for Valentine's Day. So Valentine's for Vets, that's why we're going in right now to give these Valentines out, to say thank you to our veterans for all they've done for our great country, the greatest country in the world, and to give them a little love on Valentine's Day. Thanks so much. Congressman Josh Gottheimer, Democrat from New Jersey, video posted on X. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter, Word for Word, and get the stories making headlines in Washington sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at cspan.org slash connect. Have a good night.